Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is December the 2nd, 2021, and this is a continuation of the LSAT Life podcast with Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And today we are discussing, following up on what I believe will prove to be a very major announcement from the Law School Admission Council to the effect that they are basically giving their good, their seal of good housekeeping to the GRE as a valid admissions test for law school. In other words, the LSAT officially has competition. The monopoly or monopoly in effect is over. Welcome Keith, welcome Jake, how are you today? Hey, thanks for having us, I'm good. Good, thanks. Now, uh, Keith, tell me, are, are you excited about this announcement or not? I mean, you don't sound that excited. I really enjoy the LSAT. I'm not particularly excited about the GRE announcement. Okay. Jake, are, are you excited? Uh, n- no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I've, I've known both these tests for a long time, and, and uh, I, I think this has... Um, I think this has academic implications. I think this has uh, process implications. I think this provides unnecessary noise and confusion. Um, I'm not sure what the what the purpose is here. Okay, now we'll pick up on that in just one second. But I get the impression that both of you really do like the LSAT and feel that this is sort of an invasion. I'm not sure invasion. I'm not sure invasion is the right word. You know, it, it's it's not that that anybody should have ownership over the landscape. If somebody came by and wrote a better test for law school admissions, I think that would be fine. I think the, the problem is that law school is a professional school and therefore deserves a an exam that indicates to, to at least some degree that you are well suited to that professional program and for that profession. Um, the GRE is, as I mean, as it is called by ETS, a general exam. It's a general graduate exam. I'm not sure why that indicates that it's a good fit for law school admissions. Yeah, let's make medical school admissions based on the GRE. That, sh- that should work, right? Sure. sure. I don't see well, it as an invasion. I see it as a distraction. Who the hell cares about your GRE score? <laughs> I don't see how that's relevant, but okay. Yeah, algebra, well, I, geometry, and the first question, whether any of these tests make any difference anyway. I mean, you know, there are people who wonder that. I mean, why don't we start with that question? Well, we know the LSAT is correlated. be a standardized test for admission to law school at all? We know the LSAT's correlated with 1L grades, and we know that it's statistically correlated with bar passage rate. What do we know about the GRE and law school? I guess we'll find out. It's going to take us 30 years, but, but we'll find out eventually. Okay, okay. Let me ask you this question, all right? You know, you say, well, we know that LSAT scores co- correlate with 1L grades, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I would agree with you for sure that extreme scores for the LSAT probably are indicative of something, mostly your ability to do the LSAT, number one, but number two, I think it's very much a test of your reading uh, skills, okay? Mm -hmm. You know, what to read for. But, you know, I've never worked out in my own mind what I think about whether average LSAT scores, you know, or a lot of that sort of range where a lot of people are scoring. I mean, do do those have the same meaning and significance as the extreme scores? I don't think so. I tell people don't even apply till you get a 160. And I don't care if you're a minority and you can get a scholarship. You aren't intellectually ready. That's what I tell people because I believe it. I'm not trying to be mean about it. It's like, you know, don't try to get in the NFL if you can't bench 300 pounds or whatever the hell their metric is. It's not mean you're going to get hurt and you're going to get abused in law school and on the bar exam if you can't read well. So do you see the LSAT as sort of an anti-abuse mechanism? Yes, anti-abuse by the law schools because they are forced to grapple with this uh, with this metric that K 
can't be gamed the way that undergraduate grades can be gamed. It's more of an objective measure. I know people hate the LSAT, but do you want them to make these decisions based on well, subjective criteria? LSAT, Keith, not everybody. The students, you know, have a lot of consternation. And I try to convince them this is better than the law schools making the decision based on where your dad works, how much money your family has, where you could afford to go to undergraduate college. This is better. Yeah. And, and I will say, you know, th there's a lot of there's a lot of talk in the anti standardized testing world about whether standardized testing actually increases that gap, because access to those standardized tests is also uh, gated by, um, uh, you know, by wealth, by access, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true. But I think the LSAT is a little that effect is mitigated on the LSAT more than it is on the SAT, the ACT, on specialized high school exams. I think Great. the LSAT does a better job at leveling uh, than those other. Yeah. Well, why do you say that? I, I mean, that's, I'm not disagreeing. I'm interested to hear that. I mean, compared to the other tests, you know, particularly when you say, well, you know, I think we've talked about this or at least around this before, you know, that to some extent, prep, obviously prep options are a function of income and access to money, right? Sure. But, but I, can, I can beat an SAT student into submission. I can force it down their throat. I can give them algorithms to solve questions and they'll do, and, and, and the threshold for doing fine on the SAT in order to get yourself into an undergraduate is low enough that I can shove enough down their throat that they can get by given enough time and enough resource. You cannot do that on the LSAT. It doesn't work. Are you doing a lot of SAT tutoring? I have in the past, uh, not in the last two years. <laughs> the last two years, uh, SAT tutoring has uh, petered as schools have gone test optional and a lot of students are choosing other pathways. I still do it to some degree and ACT tutoring as well, um, but uh, it's, it's become tough because the, uh, the import of SATs has gone farther and farther up and down the chain. It's, it's split. You need it for state schools and you need it if you are applying to the top 20 and are in a very highly competitive demographic, but everybody in the middle doesn't need it anymore. What do you think the long-term prognosis is for that test? I'm worried. I'm really worried. You mean, uh, you mean it'll become extinct? Yeah. I'm worried for them. I'm not worried for everybody else. I think it's probably good for everybody else. Can you imagine a, a book of world history or sort of the history of civilization a thousand years from now and they're referencing the extinction of the SAT and the same <laughs> level as the extinction of the dinosaurs? Hey, look, we're on its hundredth anniversary, basically. So, you know, it, it's about time. Civilizations only last only so long. Um, no, I think, I think the LSAT is immune to some of that. I think the LSAT does a very good job at testing core skills and not series of information. And you know, they do that. Investing, investing, this time it's different. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But it is interesting. I mean, I think we can agree at a minimum that, you know, giving this formal seal of good housekeeping to the GRE is surely, uh, sir, surely institutionalized at the GRE as a significant competitor to the LSAT, or would you disagree with that? I mean, you know, the, it, how long did it take ACT to really take hold against the SAT? It probably took 20 years from the time that it was widely accepted by Northeastern colleges and universities to the time when students in those demographics were taking it with, with equal measure and they were being considered on equal measure. And it was really spurred by um, you know, the UC system and the studies in 2005 and the new format of the SAT. That's when it really happened. I would, I would say that LSAC would have to screw up and screw up royally for law schools to weigh the GRE equally to the LSAT. You know, they might be, Jake. Right now, there has been a, a huge inflation of high scores on the LSAT. And I have True. defended LSAC. I have said, look, they have professional statisticians and psychometricians. They know what they're doing. 
if they're allowing these scores to run away, there's a reason for it. And I have speculated that the reason is people are taking the test more times and studying for longer periods of time. And so they think this is a legitimate shift in the scores. But if it continues and if they can't justify it somehow, in my mind, it is starting to be a concern. We're, we're a year in and there's no, no sign of this inflation stopping and there's no explanation for it. But isn't the explanation clearly the result of the Facebook group? No, yeah, the, the Facebook it's group us. has been there a lot longer than this inflation. <laughs> so I don't know. Well, I, I, look, Keith, I think that's problem one. I think there's a second problem. And the second problem is, despite all their best efforts, when it comes down to it on test administration weeks, when there are lots of test takers, the, the technology is falling apart. Oh, yeah. The technology has been a disaster. Apart. You mean disaster. all this Proctor U stuff that I yeah. Yeah. Know, yeah, Complete that really, disaster. You know, I actually feel much more strongly about that than, you know, than some of the comments I see in the group because, I Me mean- too. That must be incredibly deflating, you know, to have this yeah. date in front of you and prep for it. And, I'm know, not sure. To pick up the pieces and do that prep again. So, so when GRE went computer-based and adaptive and they went out and they got these prometric test centers to administer the GRE, that seemed to me to be the way of the future. I'm not sure why LSAC is not looking toward those computer test centers as a middle ground for this. They can stay computer-based, but it can be in a controlled environment where you don't need to have a virtual proctor, where things are controlled, where, where students are isolated, where there's no COVID worry. Right. And you can still have the thing be be, you know, locked up and, and, and secure in I probably think, in an easier way. I think they don't do that. I saw this whole thing as kind of a money grab. They can administer more tests if you're at home. And I see the GRE as a money grab. They can have more applicants pay at, you know, application fees if you can apply with the GRE and not, instead of the LSAT. So I view all of this as in a really cynical way. Well, I, I suspect there's one or two people who might agree with you on that, Keith. <laughs> Are they lawyers? <laughs> well, is, one of, they, is they, one of them named John some, Richardson? Some lawyers, many people, some lawyers. Mm-hmm. No I used to, I used to hold the LSAT in, in very high regard. It was the the creme de la creme of the of the exams, in my opinion, and their transparency was was so far above everyone else's that I just held them up as a standard of the way to make a a successful exam. And over the last three or four years, they haven't made a single step that I like. <laughs> Maybe the content. I kind of like some of the content changes, but the, uh, you know, the the structural things they've done to the way the test is administered, and the way it's used in law school admissions and the way we're we're now conflating it with GRE scores, all of this, I think, is really harmful. Well, you know, I was looking at the, uh, well, Keith and I were, were looking at GRE questions before Jake got on the call. And it's very, very clear that in terms of the content of the test, the GRE has evolved much more than LSAT has evolved. In fact, LSAT's hardly evolved at all. That's the interesting thing about mm-hmm. it. But, you know, they haven't evolved structurally, but if you pay attention to the content, there is an evolution and uh, they've, You know, they've had different philosophies, I think, in the logic games and also in the logical reasoning section. Maybe it's a a function of who their authors are at a given time. Yeah, well, as I understand it, they, you know, they hire just, you know, people, consultants, you know, to generate these questions. But I mean, I I would have to think that, you know, there's an old Russian saying, uh, you know, what is it, the days go slowly and the years the days go quickly or, you know, years go slowly or something like that or the reverse. Um, I would have to think that this is more of a long-term, you know, decision on the direction of the test. So, so, so here, here, here's my, here's my problem with the GRE. I, I like the GRE. If you're going to go to grad school and you're going to study something for which the GRE is a reasonable representation, why on earth do we care about the quantitative skills of lawyers? 
John, you're the first person to say that lawyers are terrible mathematicians. Well, Why are we in law school? Exactly. Yeah. So, and and it's not to say. I mean, look, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a mathematician. I'm a math teacher. I come from a, a you know a family of scientists. I'm I'm the first to to you know tout the value of math education. But do we care about somebody's memory of geometry rules and trig and their facility with algebra and functions when it comes to their ability to analyze the law? Is that relevant? You know, before uh, exploring that question, as I was just perusing these GRE sample questions, and I looked at the math and or the so-called math. And what's interesting is that uh, two of the three types of questions on the GRE, the quantitative comparisons and the graphs or what they call data interpretation are things that were on the LSAT many years yep. ago, the exact questions, you know, during the seventies. Uh, and I can tell you that that stuff was, it was just a gift to people who, uh, you know, we're sort of fluent in basic, uh, basic quantitative skills. And I don't think they tested reason. In fact, they, I could say for sure they did not test reasoning at all. No, they're purely mechanistic, right? You learn the mechanism of a quantitative comparison. You simply try values. And if you can put in a value that makes one bigger, you try to put in a value that makes the other bigger. And then the answer is D. If you can't make the other one bigger, then the answer was the first one. If it always comes out equal, then it's C. It's, it, it's and you just only a, have four choices to worry about. I mean, even on a guessing level, it's one and four instead right. of one and five, right? And, and look, the SAT also had quantitative comparisons up until the 90s, right? Uh, no, until the early 2000s, they had quantitative comparisons. They also got rid of them. There's a reason they got rid of them. You, you want to know something interesting, John? You're talking about how the... GRE contains content that used to be on the LSAT. I have noticed that the quantitative reasoning questions on LR have become more prominent. And I have proposed in the last six months or a year that this was a response to the increasing popularity of the GRE in law school admissions. They're trying to incorporate some of the aspects of the GRE into the LR section, perhaps because of the changes that have to come to logic games or perhaps to, you know, bring new skills into the mixture. But I've wondered about that. Why do we need statistical questions or quantitative logical reasoning questions? Well, we need a little bit of fluency with regard to what proportions and percentages and, and what those things mean and data interpretation. We need to know the basics of statistics. Right. Uh, you know, as uh, Keith and I have been uh, analyzing this idea of causation and, and how it relates to LSAT and how it relates to the law. And there are some basics about the way that statistics work that's sort of necessary when evaluating uh, a, a, a causal arguments. relationship. Yeah. But do we need to go as far as to talk about it in purely algebraic terms or do we need lawyers to be able to understand it in context? What does it mean? Fifteen percent of one thing versus thirty percent of the other. Well, you know which one? The, totals, the one that the one that bugs me is there's a question about apartments and houses, and it says there's more than twice as many houses as apartments, and then they expect you to be able to reason your way through a really kind of esoteric, you know, thing about about groups and and quantities. And to me, that particular question has no relevance to data interpretation. It's pure mathematics. And, yeah. and those questions are becoming more numerous. I have no problem with testing sampling or percentages, but when it's you know, very specific mathematical relationships, I just wonder what the utility is, especially when you're not calling it quantitative reasoning. Yeah. Well, but it's... Well, but it's it's, I think it's more. I think it's more useful than the kind of quantitative reasoning that the GRE has. Okay, perhaps. <laughs> right. Well, because the, the dividing line, I think, uh, if I'm interpreting uh, Jake properly, is that what you seem to be saying is that yeah, there may be some quantitative and logical reasoning, but at least the questions test some kind of reasoning. Right. And I think what Jake is. Uh, suggesting is that a lot of the quantitative on the GRE doesn't really test reasoning. It just tests, you know, do you know this, that, or the other thing? Right? Well, on that particular question, you solve it by substituting some numbers and you get away from the reasoning. 
if you stick to the actual principle, the mathematical principle, you're sunk if you don't know it. If you just plug in some numbers, you get the question right. So it's well, for, to for me, it's a step in the wrong direction. Them. Well, the reasoning, I think, uh, is not so much mathematical reasoning as it is a test of reasoning within the constraints of the directions uh, uh, to the section. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think to Keith's point, the problem the problem with that one question is that it's one question out of many, and it's the only one that asks you to to abstract the idea that you have to put in a number. And so, you know, you have to do something simple in order to, to wrestle with these numbers. The problem right. on the GRE is that every question requires mm -hmm. you to do that, or at least allows you to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Every question on the GRE in quantitative reasoning can be solved by substituting numbers. In. And then what, what do you really understand in an abstract way? What you've been, what, what's happened is you've been taught an approach. Right. This is this is what I learned when I began teaching the SAT. Forget teaching them the concepts. It doesn't matter. It's too late for them. They're 16. They were supposed to have learned this at nine. You only have six months once a week with them. Teach them the mechanism. Oh, it's that kind yeah, of so really that mechanical. I mean, I've never actually yeah. you know taught that class, but is it really that mechanical, the SAT? Less so now than it was 20 years ago, but still yes. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, every test becomes mechanical if they don't adapt. And that's one of the strengths of the LSAT, that as soon as the market has figured out how to mechanically solve a particular question type, they change it. Yeah, they, add they change layers. the wording. They add a nuance to it that makes that trick ineffective. They, they are responsive to the market in yeah, a way Keith, that the SAT isn't. Keith did a well, really what, interesting what else analysis. Clearly, uh, you know, if I look at the the evolution of it uh, over the over a long, long period of time. Uh, the way I would describe it is that the LSAT has consistently strived to move away from question types where you could game the direction specifically to get the answer. Mm -hmm. right. You know, like that whole quantitative comparison thing, or to some extent, the data sufficiency and the GMAT. You know, and those sorts of things. I mean, I think they've done, they've done an interesting job on the test. So I think we talked about before, during the period from 82 to 89, there was a section on the test called facts and issues or some called issues and facts, where it was actually very, very similar to the quantitative comparisons on the GRE conceptually, where you had four, four choices. And the answer that you put was driven much more by the definitions and the structure of the directions of the section than so much the conclusions you make. And it was interesting that they got rid of that. And you know, I was so sad because, you know, first of all, it was a full third of the test, a full third of the test, if you can imagine. And you know, my my position on it was that you know, if there were forty questions, that you could teach a monkey to get about thirty-five of them right. I mean, you know, it gave people who had good LSAT prep a huge, huge head start because it was the sort of thing where um, I wouldn't say the directions were unclear, but, you know, most people would benefit from uh, working with somebody who really understood the directions inside out, you know, before going too far with it. But anyway, so they got rid of that. And... Uh, you know, they never replaced it, interestingly. You know, they, they used legal principles on this in the same way they had all these things like cases and principles, you know, in the 70s and stuff. And the LSAT, interestingly, com moved completely away from anything that seemed to have any, uh, you know, statute reading or, you know, pretending legal principles and that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talk about like the structure of the question type as as the means, the, the barrier of entry, right? That's essentially what quantitative comparisons are, because ultimately all it is is one big must be true question. Right. And, and, and all of our LSAT students are familiar with this. What it's saying is, does A have to be bigger than B every time? Does B have to be bigger than A every time? Do A and B have to equal each other every time? If the answer to those three is no, the answer is D. Yeah, as long as you remember, you don't put D just because you can't do it personally. Right, but all you're doing is testing three must be trues. 
So you negate them and attempt to prove the opposite. Can I make B bigger well, than A? Well, you're, you're, you're testing the ability to make different conclusions and express what those conclusions are by three defined answers, A, B, and C. Yep. And as, as soon as you understand that, yeah, as soon as you understand that that's the task, the task is really easy. They don't make it hard for you. Well, you so, know, a lot of people can't do that section. Yeah, because they don't know how. They don't have a they don't have a path to follow. They don't have the scaffold, right? If you can give them the path, they don't think, plug in a value, which one's bigger? Well, tell okay. me, tell me this. Do you isn't this an argument though for somebody who's a weak reader or something, you know, to perhaps offer the GRE? Because I mean, there's certainly nothing yes. on the L set, you know, where you can, you know, get it down to that level of, you know, systematic analysis, right? Well, absolutely. And so then I'll, then I'll turn this around on you and say, okay, do you want a re weak reader to be a 1L? How many pages a week did you read as a 1L? Well, I was a poor law student, Jake, so you can't ask me the question. I never read us, you know. Keith, how many pages a week did you read as a 1L? Keith, gosh, yeah. Gosh, 100 or more. Oh, it's got to be more than that. Way more than that. Got to be. I had a friend who was at NYU. He said in his undergrad, they had between 600 and 1,000 pages a week. I can't recall. Uh, I do some readings with a student, but I only do one class with her. So maybe that's where I came up with my hundred a week total. Yeah. So then multiply that by three or four and you're, yeah, you're up you're to 500, 500 or so. Yeah. And, and imagine be, trying to read 500 pages a week, a novel a week, except with dense nonfiction stuff. Poorly written. Try to, poorly written and trying to understand that and learn from it if you're a poor reader. No, I, think, I, you know, I think there's no question that I think law schools, have, you know, there's a high volume. I think that some of it's, I mean, it varies, but some of it can be extremely difficult. There's no question about that. And I don't think it's for everybody, but I think it's, I think it's very specifically not for anybody who really dislikes reading. And, uh, you know, we're into an era where it seems to me a lot more people uh, no longer read. I mean, I actually hear people you know, saying more and more with pride, I don't read. Right. That's why a lot of the things that Jake and I are creating and marketing, we're having to grapple with. This would probably be best in written form, but our students don't want that. So we have to present it to them, you know, orally. Yeah. But, you know, there's another interesting difference, right? Because then th those, th some would say, look, there are lots of graduate uh, uh, graduate degrees that people take the GRE for that are non-math degrees, right? If you want to go do a degree in English, degree in philosophy, a uh, degree in ancient Greek history, you still have to take the general GRE uh, and it still has the math section. And then those programs just ignore the math. They say, okay, fine. So let's go look at the verbal sections, right? If you go look at the verbal sections, the verbal sections are not testing your ability to make, to, for deductive reasoning. They aren't. They're testing your ability to understand language in context. Understand language what? In context. Yeah. Do you context. know the That's word right. soporific? Do you know the word liminal? Right? That's what it cares about. It doesn't care about whether you understand whether an argument that's being presented to you is a valid one. Isn't that what we want lawyers to do? They can go look up the word soporific or they can, you know, I mean, it, that's not the critical part of being a lawyer. I, I just don't, I, I don't get where they're coming from, except to say that they think that maybe having competition is a good thing on its face. Well, do you think it is? If GRE can hold LSAC accountable to fixing the tech issues, and to dealing with this sort of well, creep what about in just score? The general, you know, availability of testing and stuff, right? I mean, you know, my impression of this is that that Elsa has gotten a little more customer friendly, you know, since the whole GRE thing started. You know, my take on this, John, is that if the market is truly efficient, it takes a long time to, for it to become, you know, for that to be reflected. And the people who get screwed in the interim are the consumers. So while this is playing out, while GRE is holding LSAT accountable, students are, are lining up to take the GRE when it may or may not be a suitable test to apply for law school. 
So you're right in the long run, this may be a good thing. It will reveal which of these two tests is better for law school admissions. But in the short term, it creates a real difficulty for the students. Which test do you study for? How do you game your, your advantages in a system where they're trying to game theirs? Well, isn't the answer uh, all other things being equal where you think you have a competitive advantage? Or let me ask you this. You know, as I was reading this, I mean, this has been something of interest, of interest to me for many years. This, this issue raised its head about 10 years ago. I remember writing about four or five posts on it. And at that time, uh, a decade ago, they decided to, you know, sort of leave LSAT as leave it alone in this position. Um, I, I, am, I am inclined to think that this is going to have a significant long-run impact, if for no other reason, but that, you know, if people are applying to something other than law school, some kind of graduate school, they can just use the one test. But my question for you is, I mean, do you foresee your modifying your, your tutoring services in a small way for add-ons for people who are doing the GRE? Or for example, taking uh, certain parts out of the LSAT or out of the GRE and uh, you know, offering them as a module, an overlap module or something? I'm just not sure there's enough overlap to make it worth it. I mean, I'm happy to, to tutor people for the GRE that wanna get tutored for the GRE. Um, but you know, the truth is this is, you know, it, 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 let's say you are a junior in your undergraduate applying to law school for after senior year. Um, the big question is, how good was your math education in middle school? Well, we already know the answer to that if they're thinking about law school, right? Yeah, the answer is probably pretty bad. Very bad. Um, and so you're going to have to go back and relearn Algebra 1. You're going to have to go do that. And I'm going to have to send you to Khan Academy for three months. And you're going to have to relearn Algebra 1 in a better way. Um, and then I'm going to give you a list of 5,000 words, and I'm going to tell you to go memorize them. That's that's thing one. You're not making it sound like a lot of fun, you know. It's not. It's not fun at all. Studying for the GRE stinks. It's not fun. And if you at study least, for the LSAT instead, you'll come away with some really robust reading skills. Yeah. I you hope know, that, I don't that, have that to. That's a very, very good point. I, I must say that I, I agree with you completely on that. Okay. I think we probably all agree that the LSAT can be used as an opportunity to improve basic learning, reading, and ultimately life skills. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's too bad more people don't see LSAT prep as a significant stage in life. You know, I was born, I went to medical middle school, I went to high school. I got married, I started a family, I studied for the LSAT for five years, and then, you know. I think a lot of people do see it that way. People who study for it sometimes choose not to go to law school and to become LSAT tutors or to start companies focus on LSAT education. It really is a very clever test. You said one time that you thought it was like a great books thing. It's even better though, right? The great books major was the great books of antiquity. It wasn't the great books of modernity. The LSAT <laughs> is the great books of today. The, all the knowledge of today in one resource. I find it really fascinating. Way, and I could imagine, you know, I mean, I guess organized religion is on the down and out, but, you know, if we could imagine something that was sort of analogous to, you know, the great LSAT tutors of our age would become, you know, bishops, cardinals, <laughs> you know, something like that, you know, how, 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 how you talk to ultimate knowledge, you know, how you connect with ultimate knowledge. I mean, there's a reason the great scientists of old were also the, the monks and that wasn't, wasn't Gregor Mendel a monk. Yeah, he absolutely yeah. was a monk. Yeah. See, there you go. You got he was bored out of his mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna he play lived with at a monastery. Plants. Yeah, sure. You got 20 years to mess around with plants. I'll figure something out. Um, and honestly, you know, uh, God, his data was was so perfect. Gregor Mendel is one of my favorite stories in science. He beat the the professional scientists by decades, and when they started catching up to him. 
they were doing their their uh, research in the university laboratories and someone told him, hey, look at this uh, monk was writing about this 40 years ago and they just couldn't believe it. <laughs> good stuff. Yeah, it's hilarious. They had to rediscover that he had already figured out everything they were trying to figure out. Really a great story in science. Yeah. You know, I, I, I found it interesting that there was not there was very, you know, I'm surprised how little interest there was, you know, in the group and the comments and all about, you know, uh, allowing the GRE into the Church of Elsa. I mean, it, it might be a little bit of Boy Who Cried Wolf, right? We heard this story two years ago and we heard this story. For, I mean, I forget what the beginnings of this were about four years ago. That's what I thought. Was. Yeah, we, we already heard this twice and nothing really came of it. So maybe they just think this is another... You know, well, you know, that couple, I don't think it matters for the people who are in the system right now. You know, they're just, yeah. it's just sort of business as usual. Yeah. I view it a lot like the, you know, when the GRE, when the business school started accepting the GRE, a lot of people said, well, this spells the doom of the GMAT. Well, it's never going to spell the doom of, of any one of these tests. I mean, all it's going to do is, you know, I it just sort of create opportunities for, you for know, improvement, you think you think the LSAT will have to improve to uh, to account for this? I think it will. Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, I see this as more of a you know a long. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm interested in this whole testing stuff, and you know, I will have a long term view of it. And I see this as uh, yeah, it's 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 going to change the whole culture of law admissions and. Interesting. You know, not immediately, but I, I think that it has to. I mean, at a bare minimum, you know, one of the things that watching the this LSAT study group, you know, sort of from time to time that stands out for me is, you know, that, that all this test prep and that, you know, it really imposes a clear financial burden on a lot of people. Um, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people. And it seems to me that the people who are also applying to graduate school or something may appreciate this because, you know, we'll cut down on their overall expenses and, you know, that sort of thing. And I think there may be more people for whom that may be a factor than we think. Um, and I think it will, it will also, I mean, I think it has to gradually change the attitude uh, that people have towards the LSAT and the whole, you know, the whole industry and the whole cult, which is, you know, I mean, it's, it's actually cultish, uh, you know, when people are really deeply entrenched in this thing. I mean, LSAT prep, it's a cult, <laughs> you know, and, you know, there's some people who never leave in the sense that you, know, oh, you make God. a point of all the people who, you know, do the test and don't go to law school or something like that. I mean, I am aware of just because I'm aware of this stuff, uh, you know, of any number of, of, of LSAT tutors who, I mean, I don't, I, regardless of what their original motivation was, you know, never been to law school and, you know, et cetera. I mean, I don't think it affects the, the tutoring thing. I actually think it's probably not a bad thing because at least it reminds people that, you know, there is, there is life if one doesn't go to, law school you know, which yeah. is not a bad thing to be reminded of i think that should be reminded more often i heard someone in the group saying today that they were really disappointed with their lsat score and everybody was saying you can get in anyway and i wonder is it ever appropriate to say you know i don't have the right skills i have to choose a different goal this isn't working for me i don't enjoy lsat prep when is it appropriate to say I've, I've got the information I need not to go to law school. Uh, you know, I, I think you make a fantastic point, Keith. I really do. I, you know, I think I put up something I wrote at some time. I don't know. I may have put it in the group or not. But, you know, all those years I was doing this, people would call me, oh, I got out of law school. And I'd say, well, is this good news or bad news? <laughs> you know, because there's an awful lot of people in law school who really should not be there. Yeah, there's a lot oh, of people who are lawyers who really should not be there. And my theory on it is that you get involved in things like law school and medical school and probably other analogous types of schools. 
And it's a total system of what I would call third party approval. You know, you have to get to this step. You know, you have to get to that step. Then you get have to pass the bargs and you have to get a job. They have to be partner. You know, and it goes on and on and on until, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 30 years have passed and you realize you were living your whole life, you know, relative to, you know, goalposts set up, created by other people or institutions, you know, that you've decided that you need to, you know, kind of get through. And I mean, I no, I, I really, I feel very strongly that a lot of the people who are applying to law school should not have that as their goal. I feel very strongly that a lot of people who get in should leave after the first semester, you know, when they find out what it's really like. But there's this sense that, you know, I've gone this far, I have this invested, I have, you know, I can't, I need to finish. And I think that is a huge mistake. Well, you know, I, I, I think this is a good point and it, and, and it sort of, I think it all rests on this abstract idea of, I want to be a lawyer. I mean, what does that mean? Do they even know what they want, what they no. want to do? Being a lawyer, yes, that's no. a label. <clears throat> the question is, what do you want to do with your life, right? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to be involved in? Yeah. And being a lawyer is not that being a lawyer is being trained in a certain number of things and then getting accredited. But ultimately, do you, do you want to be a judge? Do you want to be a litigator? Do you want to do research? Do you want to do contracts? Do you want to do media? Those are the things that actually make a difference. And if you're interested in getting into media and contracts, you can do that through the legal profession, or you can do that in another direction. You don't have to go to law school to accomplish that. Or you, know, you don't need a JD. I mean, there are, there's right. any number of LLM programs out there you know, that right. will give you, you know, a specialization, a certain type of law, you know, if you don't want to be a member of the bar. But, you know, Jake, you make a great point. And, you know, in group sessions, I used to put it this way. There's a difference between having a career and having a life. And, you know, I really, really, you know, I mean, just when I look at the, the, the degree of anguish, right, you know, that's out there, you know, this whole pre-law community, I think they need to be reminded of this because you know what? Um, there sure is life for people who don't go to law school. And, you know, it's pretty obvious that, that, you know, they're having better lives than a lot of people who do, but there's something about, you know, getting on this, this, you know, this treadmill, if you like, you know, of trying to, you know, get in, it's as though, and you don't need to be accepted, you know, to get any, you know, validation of, of your self-worth or anything like that. And I think that, I think that law school and the whole culture of becoming a lawyer is a real problem in the sense that, you know, you're, you know, you're signing up for years and years of third-party validation, you know, testing and, or, you know, I mean, this stuff is, is, uh, is a problem. And, you know, it doesn't it doesn't end when you make partner, John, there's no, a no, metric, of course it doesn't. you know, profit per partner. PPP is a, a way that the partners compete. Yeah. So uh, it truly is a world of competition and measurement. And if you, that's not the kind of world you want to work in, then you have to find something else, no matter what you dreamt up about being a lawyer. I, I, I don't even know. I mean, I think it might include the competition, but I think that that, you know, to Jake's point, right, that, you know, people have no idea what it even means, you know, this whole concept. Of, I mean, I was the same way. I mean, I graduated from law school, I think, before my 24th birthday or something, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I had never really put any particular thought into that. I mean, people don't do things they should do. I mean, I think that they all should, everybody should sit on a law school classes, as many as they can, you know, to see what it, it's actually about. Because I honestly think that a lot of people would be horrified yeah. if they saw what was really going on in that environment. Me too. I, th I think there's also, you know, the, uh, and, and this is a problem particular to Americans, though I'm sure there are Canadians that suffer from this as well, that well, we all sure, want to I'm believe, sure. yeah, I'm sure, uh, <laughs> that we all want to believe that we will be the exception. Yes, I know there are plenty of people that struggle in law school and that struggle to make partner and that aren't happy with the profession, but I'm going to be the one. I'm going to buy the lottery ticket and I'm going to win the $150 million and I'm going to be the one that's partner by, by 28 
uh, and that and you know that that is the the superstar. So I don't have to worry about the pragmatism of the distribution of happiness among people that that apply to law school because I'm I'm ahead of the curve at every step. And if right now you're struggling with the LSAT, if right now you're struggling with the the kind of rigor it's taking for you to get to a point where you are performing the way you want to perform. Take that as indication, not that you're not fit or that you're not capable, but that there is a certain amount of energy and effort and reorganization of your, your time, energy, and, and, and priorities in order to be that person on the bleeding edge of success in the field. And if you're not willing to make those sacrifices, if they're too difficult for you or if they're not worth it to you, then don't think that you're going to be able to just walk into grabbing the golden ring on the other side of law school. It's not going to work that way. Yeah, that's certainly true. Another thing, though, that I believe is true is this, that life is competitive. And the only way to compete is to be doing something you really enjoy doing. Yeah. Because the people who win the competition are not really the people who are the smartest uh, they're the people they're not even the people that work the hardest no it's a they're war the of attrition enjoy what they're doing and mm. therefore there is no work you know etc yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's attrition right ultimately you have to be the one who is willing to do it no matter if you're successful or not no matter if you're doing well or not you want it you it's the only thing you want and you are willing to immerse yourself in it all the time and if you're yeah. willing to do that over the course of time the others will fall away and you'll you'll rise to, you know you'll be the cream yeah you know this is so true but the question is you know i didn't think this way when i was you know in my early 20s whenever i went to you know i didn't think this way and i think very few people do and they were you know they just don't i don't i don't know how you I mean, I have great respect to be clear for anybody listening to this podcast for what you're, you know, what everybody's trying to do. And, you know, I wish them not so much luck, but I wish them the focus, the perseverance to achieve their goal. I don't really believe luck exists. Okay. Uh, you know, there's a saying that, uh, uh, what is it? Success favors the prepared mind. Okay. You know, and that's a slogan I used to actually use. Um, but there's a real danger of getting so sucked into the vortex of the LSAT cult and the pre-law cult that, you know, you kind of lose sight of what you were doing. There's a very old Robert Redford movie called The Candidate where he says, you know, you've seen that, okay, where, you know, he decides he wants, I think he's running for the Senate or something like that. And, you know, he gets involved in the whole thing. And, and then in the end it happens, they win. And then there's this realization. And he says, oh my God, what do we do now? Yeah. Yeah. I always wanted to run a campaign, but I never wanted to be uh, in office. So that was always kind of contradictory. Why don't you run for president <laughs> as an independent candidate then? You know, all I wanted to do was really be a, a pain in the neck of the establishment to kind of poke holes at the silliness of the things people say in politics. But I have no desire to be a public servant. Maybe you could reconfigure your LSAT prep courses by focusing on things that politicians say. <laughs> That'd be, we'd have a lot of, of non-valid argumentation in there. I'm well, sure. it certainly would be an interesting uh, segue into, you know, managing, well, the very least some answer choice and logical reason. You, I mean, you could watch the, the president, uh, you know, press conference every day and have a new question a day. Sure. Let's just grab the transcripts and see if we can find ourselves some 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 flawed arguments. You know, the problem with the current president is he doesn't make strong enough points. <laughs> there isn't <laughs> enough logic behind his conclusions to know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> it's funny. Well, yeah, he's a really um, bad speaker. Yeah, he is. Well, but he knows it. Uh, he admits to it. He's a bit past his prime, I think. <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Uh, um, but, but I don't think he was great in his part. You know, President Biden's been in politics. I mean, really, is there anybody who's even a close second? In terms of in terms of the longevity, longevity. Of I mean, it's been it's been fifty years. So I think it's so. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. He was a really, really, really young uh, candidate when he first ran. He was Some of right. his early positions are kind of funny. You know, things have changed, and uh, he can't. 
yeah. no way <laughs> can't to get away, away from those quickly yeah. enough. Well, you know, America what's interesting in his or her forties, I think. Yeah. Well, we had one. We'll have more. Well, that's um, true. That's true. Yeah. John, to your to your previous point, which which I think was a which is a good one. You know, you graduated from law school at twenty four, and you didn't think this way. Of course not. But I'm sure there were some crusty old people that were saying the same stuff to you then, right? And here well, we are. I'm sure there were, but but of course I never listened to anybody, Jake. Of course not. And here we are. I knew everything. And here we are, the crusty old people saying this to people that don't want to hear it because they want to be exceptional, but they have to hear the the reality, which is that you might not be the exceptional one, and that's okay, and plan for the future and plan for the contingencies, and know that it's okay to make choices, make affirmative choices that are good for you, that make you happy. You you know what what I find really interesting is that the people who argue with me the most vehemently in the group are either zero L's or one L's. I have never, ever had someone return a year or two or three after law school and say, you know, Keith told me all this stuff and he was wrong. He, he was, you know, I, I was right. I, I did make a success. It was just as easy as I thought it would be. You can just work hard and it will happen for you. Nobody ever comes back and says that. And I think that's really telling because I have been banging this drum for a decade. And nobody in that decade has come back after the fact and said, you lied to me, Keith. The only people who think I'm lying are the people who haven't done it yet. And so to, um, so to, bring, so to bring it back to the, to the point, right, where, where we started on this podcast, I think the problem with the GRE is that it does not act as a, as a check on that process. It doesn't tell you not to go (laughs) to tell you not to go because you can get away with the same crap that you got away with in high school and the same crap that you got away with in your undergraduate. You can study your way out of the GRE. You can't do that on the law on on the LSAT. You have to learn something for the LSAT. You don't on the GRE. You just have to memorize stuff. Well, you, you have to learn. You have to learn how to apply some reading and reasoning skills on the LSAT. Yep. You, you know, I, I actually do agree. I, you know, I presume that this that we are united in this particular position that the LSAT actually is a, is a, is a very strong test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've always said that from the first time I took one. I was like, wow, this is different. Yeah, this actually makes me think. Me too. I couldn't just memorize stuff and spit it back, and that really challenged me. Did that upset you? <laughs> You know, it it caused me to switch from being a successful MCAT tutor to to focusing on something that I found far more interesting and valuable. The MCAT can be learned through memorization, but the LSAT can't. And I always found that really intriguing. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't I know very little about the MCAT, actually nothing about the MCAT. I never I don't have any background in that stuff, but I mean, clearly it's largely rooted in concepts of science right i mean do you know this yes yeah Yeah, and some pure science and some applied but ultimately it's it's a list of material that you learn over the course of six to 18 months and then you take the test it's like the bar yeah yeah it's a huge memorization project and then you do some critical reasoning with the material you memorized but the lsat is different because the critical reasoning happens immediately with the, without the benefit of any memorized material. Right. And you can work around a little bit of the critical reasoning in the MCAT just by knowing the material really well. Yes. You can backwards engineer some. Yeah, you, you can use you some really, tricks. You really can't. I mean, you can't look, let's be fair. You can do that on the LSAT. But as all of our listeners will cop to, when that's your core theory of LSAT taking, it's not consistent, it fails you under duress, and it's got a ceiling. And it doesn't translate to law school success as well as being a strong reader. So we would agree that um, the LSAT of all of these tests we've sort of mentioned today would be the hardest to prep for. Hardest is tough. I mean, I think I the think best. the MCAT's really, yeah, it's the best test. I think the MCAT's really hard to prep for because it really requires very, very robust memorization techniques. Like tons really, of it. It's a, 
It's a lot of material. Yeah, it's a different skill. Is the AMCAD a test where, I mean, let's assume that you know everything you need to know. Uh, When I was in my early 20s, that would have been precisely my position, by the way, I know everything. Um, Everything I need to know. Everything, yeah, and if I don't know it, it's because it's not necessary. That's right. Um, what about the, the 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 reasoning application though on that particular test? I mean, I don't know anything about it. I just you know just asking, trying to benefit from your insight here. I mean, is there a strong reasoning component on that, or is it really just you know? A lot of it can be gamed through pattern recognition, even if the reasoning is complex. Someone else has done it before. Someone else has done a study and gotten similar results and interpreted them correctly. And so, you know, the numbers might be new and the scenario might be slightly different, but ultimately you're drawing from your memory of reading a similar study and knowing how the scientists, you know, drew conclusions from it. It's scientific reasoning, not not logical reasoning, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and a lot of that can be memorized because science is very repetitive. It's rare that someone truly comes up with a new experimental protocol. Usually they're just doing the same experiments over and over in different contexts. Right. So what I yeah. tell my students for the MCAT is memorize every laboratory protocol, learn those. Because what you're going to have to do is figure out how it's been applied to different circumstances. But if you go into the MCAT and you don't know every single thing they do in the lab, you're, you know, you're, you've got half your brain tied behind your back. Hmm. You know what? I'm really glad that I don't have to worry about any standardized tests in my life anymore. Only for my kids. That's all I have to worry about. Only for my kids. Uh, you you got to live it vicariously. Well, it's a good thing that, you know, you're doing this kind of work, Jake, because you're, you know, you're really preparing yourself for the most important tutoring project of your life. You know, your kids, right? Oh, no, it, it's, it's very simple for my kids. I just run them away from any situation in which they have to do it. <laughs> They're at a progressive elementary school. I'm going to make sure that they go to a, a non-selective, non-test-based high school. Um, and hopefully by that time, undergraduate education, if they decide to do it, isn't going to require it. I just, you know, and then they can go to law school if they want to go to law school. My eldest is destined for the Supreme court. I tell you only eight and a half, but destined tough cookie. Well, then you got to worry about the politics. If that's the case, if he's destined for the Supreme court, it's trouble. It's trouble. Well, this has been a great, very interesting discussion. It occurs to me that, uh, you know, this discussion is represents the title of our podcast, LSAT Life, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Hard for us to do anything otherwise, because that's our whole philosophy of the LSAT, that it's a lifestyle to be good at it, just like it's a lifestyle to be healthy or a lifestyle to be a good attorney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a lot of muscle memory. It's a lot of, uh, you know, habitual stuff for sure, et cetera. No, no question about it. But I think that it might be worth reminding people that um, at its core, an LSAT score should be understood as your ability to do the LSAT on that particular day. And I wouldn't want anybody listening to this stuff or being, you know, in these, you know, these social media groups to, you know, to allow a poor LSAT score to, you know, have too major of an impact on their lives, I guess is what I'm trying to say. They move on to something else. And there certainly is life beyond LSAT. There is no question about it. Well, I, you know, on, on that note, just as a send off, I want to encourage everybody. It's, it's about undergraduate degrees, but it applies here. Go read Frank Bruni's book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. It will give you some perspective on this. Your LSAT score doesn't matter. Where you go to law school doesn't matter. What matters is what you do when you get wherever you go. And it no doesn't question. matter if no. it's Harvard, Yale, Stanford, or, you know, anywhere else or not law school. There are mar- far more important and valuable things you'll do with your life. Do you think we should do a podcast called the LSAT List Life? Ooh, absolutely. Or at least the law school list life. Yeah, the talk about life. what we wish we had done instead. Interesting. 
All right. Thank you so much again. This has been a very, very interesting, enjoyable conversation as always. And as always, let's close with your coordinates. Where would people get in touch with you to explore either an LSAT life or an LSAT-less life? So we are at triplereview.online. You can find us there. Um, Just so everybody knows, we've just started a a subscription service for very, very inexpensive, $10 a week um, to do a couple of live classes, four live classes a week in the evenings. And you can also contact us there. Uh, We're also on Facebook. Um, I'm at Nexus Academics. And you can find me on Facebook. Uh, the triple review dot online is what the project that I have going with Jake. And then I have the last call bar Academy site where I post some stuff independently. So did I hear right that you can get a subscription for under $10 a week for LSAT prep? $10 a week. And we're doing four hours of classes for that $10 a week. Oh my God, you're pioneers in LSAT prep yeah, at that we're rate. Trying, we're I mean, trying. the first week, there's a subscription fee, a licensing fee that we have to pay to LSAT. But then after that, it is $10 a week. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing stuff. I mean, certainly on behalf of the people who are overwhelmed with LSAT anxiety, I mean, I I will thank you on behalf of all of them because they're probably too worried to take the time to do so, but that does seem to me to be pretty generous. Well, we're enjoying it. It's given us a chance to work with a lot of people who couldn't afford to work with us in the past. And that's been a breath of fresh air for me because I've spent a lot of years working with clients that were really exclusive. Well, actually it sounds to me like you're getting pretty exclusive if you're uh, all of a sudden, including the people who didn't have access before. That's that's another way of looking at it. Anyway, great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks for the conversation. Until next time. And I think we should close with, although this is called LSAT life, there is, in fact, life without the LSAT. Thanks very much. Thanks, John. Thanks.